On Wednesday, September 27th, this is Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. It's a sort of chilly Wednesday. Yeah. It has cooled off a bit here with the start of fall. But this summer, mm. around the world, it was a scorcher. It was the hottest summer on record. And we've got renowned climate scientist Michael Mann with us later to talk about how climate change is shaping our planet and some lessons mm. from past climate events. And with all of that knowledge, he's going to tell us why we shouldn't stick our heads in the sand. There is still time for action. It's not too late. And we want to hear from you, friends. We want your comments about climate change. Are you worried about it? Have you made changes to the way you live because of it? Call us. Our number is 888 477 9499. You can also email us at studio2 at whyy.org. Also, we'll talk about yesterday's decision to dismiss charges against former Philadelphia police officer Mark Dial in the fatal shooting of Eddie Irizarry. Philadelphia Inquirer's Chris Palmer, Palmer, excuse me, is here with us. But first, we're going to talk about the Phillies. I know you're happy about this. Yeah, well, how could I not be? Um, last night, Citizens Bank Park tie game bottom of the 10th inning johan rojas steps to the plate let's play the sound bouncer back toward the middle leaking into center field a base hit pache's coming home the throw to the plate not in time the phillies are going back to the postseason yes they are that was the consequence of, of last, last night's <laughs> lots win. of excitement the phillies have uh, clinched a playoff spot in fact they will be the top wild card team uh, for folks who follow baseball, they know what that means. If you don't, I'm not going to explain it now. Basically, playoff baseball is coming back to South Philadelphia for the second year in a row. Cherry, Greg, will you watch? Do you have thoughts? Um, may or may, <laughs> or may not watch. Few thoughts, except go Phillies. Okay. Um, I'm going to stick with that. Um, I would love to see us take another trip to the World Series. You know, there's a long road ahead, of course. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, I had moved to Philly in 2008 when they won. And so it was here. a great year. And yes. I that was my introduction to Philly fans. And I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, there was. And there was a um, a wild clubhouse bash last night. Lots of cigars mm-hmm. and champagne celebrating. And when I was watching it, I realized that the baseball celebrations after a big win in the clubhouse are the best oh. of all the sports, I think. Because okay. football... There's too many people. They like splinters into like five different parties. You know, you got all the trainers and there's Mm -hmm. like 100 players. Basketball is not enough. I mean, 12, 15 person roster. That's not a party. Baseball is right in the sweet spot. (laughs) It always looks like the best celebration to be a part of. Someday, perhaps I could cover one of those. That would be a dream. Or get an invite. Or get an invite. And be able to just be. Uh, Be Avi Wolfman Aaron at a party. You know what I mean? (laughs) We could do Studio 2 from the clubhouse (laughs) after a win. How about that? Yeah. And um, on a more serious note, you know, and I will say our fans can get rowdy, but not like the teens um, that were a little rowdy last night. Groups of teens ransacked stores in Center City in West Philly and in the Northeast. Young people broke into and vandalized stores. They smashed storefronts. They stole merchandise. And police say more than two dozen people were arrested. The reports began around 8 o'clock last night after peaceful protests over the judge dismissing charges against that former Philadelphia police officer. After those peaceful protests dispersed, interim police commissioner John Stanford said the looting had nothing to do with those protests, but he called the vandals criminal opportunists. Here was a little bit of his reaction to see what our city went through um, in 2020. 
and to have um, you know some individuals try to recreate that same type of energy tonight is, is disgusting. It, it has no space in the city. Clearly, you know, he said they took advantage of a peaceful gathering to wreak havoc on the city. The unrest was contained by around a little bit after nine o'clock. And this looting seemed to have been organized on social media. There were caravan of cars. They broke into pharmacies, a liquor store, Apple store, sneaker stores, and more. Very similar to what you and I witnessed a yep. few years ago um, following the death of George Floyd and, and um, Walter Wallace here in the city. We saw unrest and, and looting take place. Your thoughts? Yeah, I was struck by the com the interim commissioner's assertion that this was planned on social media and seemed like somewhat premeditated mm -hmm. and that there was some coordination among sort of like with cars moving from one location to another. I'm just curious if how, if as as the investigation kind of flushes that out, what exactly that looks like, mm -hmm. um, because it does seem like um, something of a recurring theme yeah. with incidents like yeah. this. And uh, we've talked about this before. It, it is kind of what distinguishes this era of sort of teen mayhem from past mm -hmm. ones is the ability to coordinate in large numbers online beforehand. So I will be curious to see where that goes. Yeah, and it's interesting because it could be like, it spreads like wildfire, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, it, whether intentional or unintentional, that's what it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Another uh, issue that we've been following over mm -hmm. the years um, is the fate of supervised injection sites yeah. in Philadelphia, also called overdose prevention centers. These are places where people can use drugs under mm -hmm. supervision um, to prevent, the, the, the intent is to prevent overdose. Um, earlier this month, city council, we told you, voted 13 to 1 yeah. on a near total ban on these sites. Kendra Brooks was the sole vote against the ban. Uh, Mayor Jim Kenney decided to veto mm -hmm. um, this this legislation. Largely symbolic, right? 13 to 1 is clearly a veto-proof majority. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, I think, interesting and notable that Jim Kenney, among what I might term the major figureheads, politicians in the city and the state is the last person who has decided to stick by this idea, which at one point really looked like it was going to happen here in yeah. Philadelphia. And I think it's notable, A, that he has done so, and B, that he has seemingly very little political future in front of him, um, and perhaps B, informs A, we don't really know, but I just thought it was a notable veto and that yeah. there is a politician left who still believes that this is an idea that's worth pursuing. Yeah, and, and I'm not surprised because Mayor Kenny, who's been pretty benign lately, he's lame duck, clearly. Yeah. But he was once an extremely strong advocate for safe injection sites. He was behind the city's for push to become the first in the country to host one. Of course, that did not happen. We yeah. were beat by other cities. But I, I think this is sort of like him taking a stand. He's like, if there's a hill I got to die on, I'm yeah. willing to, to do it on this one. And like you said, he, it's like he hasn't really been yeah. doing that with other issues. No, he's been he just, sort of like yeah. laying low but clearly this is something where, where place where his passion lies exactly and and part of it probably the city recorded 1400 overdose deaths last year 11 percent increase from 2021 so it's a still a very big yeah. issue and here I, I just wanted to read one quote from a letter mm -hmm. that he wrote to council upon veto because i think it speaks to something broader beyond just yes. this issue mm -hmm. kenny wrote Quote, history has shown time and again that making the right policy choice, school desegregation, for example, cannot always be outsourced to public, public opinion, opinion if yeah. we hope to make progress as a society. Him basically saying that you can't just focus on local opposition to something. You have to, at times, 
look at the bigger picture. Whether you agree with him on this issue or not, I think that is, it's interesting to hear a political figure say something like that. Yeah, and with so many deaths happening, by the way, there are no (laughs) supervising injection sites in the city of Philadelphia. So just in case you wondered. October 1st, Countdown is on. Yes. For folks who have had a pause on their student loan payments, guess what? <sighs> the time is come yeah. where you will have to pay again. Tens of millions of Americans, they're facing those payments once again. And Avi, let me tell you, they are not ready. It's been three years yeah. since folks have had to pay. We're dealing with inflation, all sorts of things. But now starting October, 43 million people will have to start paying. The average borrower pays about 200 a month. And many folks will struggle. Um, WHYY education reporter Amanda Fitzpatrick, she spoke to some folks about that. But the good news is, Avi, the Biden administration said there will be few repercussions for the first year. And the Education Department won't report people who miss payment to credit bureaus. But still, interest will accrue. And there are some efforts by the administration to alleviate payments and to tie them to how much money you make. So we'll see. Yeah, uh, still a live issue. Um, obviously, the 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 ruling by the Supreme Court on mm-hmm. this uh, changed changed the game for a lot of folks. And so, October first is when rubber meets road. Rubber meets road. Yes. Um, yesterday in the program, we shared that a judge mm-hmm. had dismissed all charges against former Philadelphia police officer Mark Dial in the fatal shooting of 27-year-old Eddie Irizarry. That news broke just as we were coming on the air yesterday. Yeah. If you'll recall, this is the case where um, the the department first reported that Irizarry had gotten out of his vehicle, then quickly amended that report when body cam footage showed Irizarry was shot and killed while sitting inside his car. There has been a significant local and national reaction to this police shooting. And joining us now with the latest is Chris Palmer, criminal justice reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Chris, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks so much for having me. So, Chris, the judge in the case dismissed all charges against former officer Dial, ruling the prosecutors had not presented enough evidence that the shooting was a crime. What led to the judge's decision? So she didn't offer a lengthy explanation from the bench, which she, to be clear, is not required to do. What she essentially said at the end of the hearing was that she agreed with Dial's defense attorneys, who made the argument to her that while this shooting was a tragedy, they said it was not a crime, that Officer Dial at the time was with his partner pursuing a car that had been driving erratically on the streets. They said he had driven past uh, Eddie Rosario when he was driving his car, had driven past the officers in their police cruiser through a bike lane, had turned the wrong way on some traffic, drove the, the wrong way down a one-way street, and then pulled over on the side of the road. They said Officer Dial and his partner both got out of the car and that his partner, Michael Morris, said there's a knife. Uh, Dial's lawyers contended that he could have, that Officer Dial could have heard gun, that he was immediately concerned mm-hmm. for his safety, that he walked around the car with his gun drawn, as his partner did, and that fearing for his life and his safety, he shot Eddie Irizarry and then immediately retreated and sought to have Irizarry taken to a hospital. Their contention was that prosecutors hadn't presented any evidence during a preliminary hearing yesterday to show that this was a criminal act, Mm. that police officers are given latitude under the law to use their weapons or deadly force when they fear for their safety. They said that's what Dial did in this case. And again, the judge, without offering a a lot of analysis, essentially just said, I agree with you wholeheartedly and dismissed all the charges. um, And the case uh, was dismissed. 
I think that's what surprised people, mm-hmm. though, Chris, the dismissal, because it's one thing to say, hey, this has gone through a lengthy trial. A jury decided guilty or not guilty based on the facts. But this case is is just dismissed. I mean, can you help us understand how a judge is able to make that type of determination in what seems like a pretty early stage of this? So at a preliminary hearing, which is the stage we were at yesterday, prosecutors have the burden to prove more likely than not that a crime was committed and that the defendant was the person who committed it. And more the, likely than not, more likely than not. So we've all heard through Law and Order or other shows that you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone is guilty. That's at the trial stage. Yep. Yesterday was the preliminary hearing stage, which just means essentially 5149. You have to show that it's more likely than not that something criminal happened and that the person who is sitting at the defendant's table was the one who committed that crime. And one person gets to make that determination. The judge, which is the judge. Correct. No jury at this stage. I got to ask you, because we all looked at the video. You looked at it. Avi and I looked at it. The public looked at it. Um, and a lot of folks don't understand this ruling. Last night, protests show the community, the family of Eddie Irizarry, very upset. I want to play some reaction from Eddie Irizarry's aunt, Zoraida um, Garcia, from outside the courthouse yesterday. The proof was there. All the evidence was there for the judge to say lack of evidence was wrong because the proof we showed her. It was a murder. He, that officer used daily force. You know, the windows was up. The doors was locked. And you shot through the window six times, man. And so, Chris, you hear that. Let's break it down a little bit. What does the law say? Could, could you expound on that a little bit about what the law says that made it? the judge say like these actions are justified based on the law this this latitude that police get so the most relevant portion of the law i think is that police officers in pennsylvania are allowed to use their service weapons if they believe their safety or the safety of other people uh, is at risk if they think that they're about to be killed or seriously injured or that other people are they can use their weapons um, to protect themselves or to protect the public that was certainly something that the the dials attorneys uh, we're raising um, in saying that prosecutors hadn't presented anything to to refute that. Prosecutors obviously disagree, as do many community members. They say this was clearly not a justified shooting. Uh, for those who haven't seen the video, Mark Dial got out of the car and shot Eddie Irizarry within five seconds of leaving his police cruiser. Uh, prosecutors contend that that was a crime, that mm-hmm. he, he did not. And Eddie Irizarry, by the way, did not have a, a gun. He had a knife in his hand, but the doors were locked. The, the windows were rolled up, up. Yeah. and so prosecutors' contention was he was not a threat to Officer Dial or to anyone else around him, and Officer Dial shot and killed Eddie Irizarry in a way that they contended was a crime. Obviously, uh, his lawyers disagreed, as did a judge yesterday. Yeah, let's hear from his lawyer. This is defense attorney Brian McMonagall after yesterday's decision. Hearing gun, seeing gun, he fired. Um, like I said, it, it's heartbreaking. It's a tragedy. But not a crime. Not a crime for now. There is the possibility of appeal, right, Chris? So so how likely is that? What would that look like? And sort of like, can, can you speculate? Maybe you can't, but can you speculate on sort of like what terms an appeal might be filed? Prosecutors have already appealed the decision. They appealed yesterday almost immediately. I think it was within an hour or so. But what happens next is... There was a the prosecutors have filed a notice of appeal. There is another judge 
that then has to look over the case. They will look over the evidence that prosecutors have already presented during that preliminary hearing. They will likely look over the transcript of that preliminary hearing to see what the testimony was. And then prosecutors have the ability during a hearing next month to present any additional evidence if they wish to support or bolster any of the charges they think um, might be applicable. That judge will then decide whether the judge who threw out the charges yesterday was correct, whether she was partially correct, or whether all the charges should remain dismissed. If any of those charges are reinstated, they are likely to head toward trial, putting Dial uh, back on the trial path. Um, But it really comes down to, again, kind of the discretion of a judge to assess the evidence that prosecutors are going to present. Started with one judge, and it would have to be one judge that would just disagree with the first judge. Correct. And so let's talk about um, former officer Dial, his status um, with regard to the police department. He's not working there right now. Could he get his job back? What, What does it look like in the near term for him? In the near term, I think there's unlikely to be anything that happens in terms of his status. He was then Commissioner Outlaw, who recently resigned, um, moved to fire Officer Dial for what she said was insubordination for not cooperating with the department's internal investigation into this. That firing has taken effect. He is no longer on the books, the police department has told us. Um, Now that he is technically not facing charges or if there is a situation where he is not facing any charges at all Mm -hmm. he has the ability to appeal his firing he would have to go through the state mandated arbitration process that can take months or years he also would have to make the decision that he wants to appeal his firing which would mean he would have to decide that he wants to return to the police force his lawyers yesterday said that was a few steps ahead of where he was he just wanted to get home and reestablish himself. The other thing that makes this complicated is if a judge, as we just discussed, reimposes any of those criminal charges, Mm. Dial's likely to be a criminal defendant for several years. He cannot try to get his job back while facing criminal charges. So if he ever wants to try and get his job back on the Philadelphia police force, it's likely a months, if not years long process. Real quick, under 30 seconds here, Chris, uh, any possibility of a civil case here? I think uh, it, It's possible. Again, I think the biggest thing that needs to be resolved first is next month determining what the status of this criminal case is. If that criminal case moves forward, the likelihood of any civil action uh, is a long way away. If the case gets dropped again, there's always creative lawyers out there that might want to file some litigation. How likely that is to succeed, uh, we will see. Yeah, we will see. That is Chris Palmer, criminal justice reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Chris, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, climatologist Michael Mann is standing by. You can email studio2 at whyy.org. And our phone lines are open. We want to hear from you. Stick with us. This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Cherry. Yes. It we, was. <laughs> we, we were talking about this. It was a hot summer, not just in our region. There were uh, record-breaking temperatures all around the world. According to NASA, the summer of 2023 was the hottest we have on record. That is, since mm-hmm. people have been keeping track in 1880. And besides those scorching temperatures, there were devastating wildfires. Remember those? All the air coming down here. The, they took place in Hawaii, parts of Canada, Greece, Massive flooding across Europe and Asia. And as you probably know, all of these extreme events and the sweltering days are connected 
to climate change. All those greenhouse gases that we've been pumping into the atmosphere for a hundred years, trapping heat and warming the planet. Of course, when you start talking about climate change, a lot of people, they want to cover their ears. Or, you know, just give up. Yeah. But we had a listener recently who said, you know what? You got to talk to Michael Mann about this. Mm -hmm. And little did that listener know, we actually were already talking with Michael Mann about having uh, him on the program. Because that doomism Mm -hmm. mindset is exactly what climate scientist Michael Mann is fighting against. Mann directs the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He believes that as bad as it is, and some of the warming may be baked in at this point, it is still not too late to take action. Michael Mann joins us in the studio to talk about what's happening to the planet and what we can do about it. He's got a new book that just came out called Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Michael, welcome. Uh, Thanks. It's great to be with you guys. And we want you to join our conversation. What do you want to know about climate change? Have you made changes in your life because you are worried about it? You can call us. That number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. So, Michael, you write, the conditions that allowed humans to live on this earth are incredibly fragile, and there's a relatively narrow envelope of climate variability within which human civilization remains viable. Can you give us an understanding of what this narrow envelope is and why you argue that this moment is so fragile? Yeah, you know, our entire civilization, uh, our infrastructure that now, you know, serves uh, 8 billion plus people on the planet was built during a climate that was remarkably stable. Over the last 6,000 years, uh, global temperatures were relatively flat. Um, There were regional climate changes, but if there were regional challenges, you could move somewhere else. What's different about what's happening today, it's global in scale. Everywhere is impacted. And so what we're doing by burning fossil fuels and uh, warming uh, the planet faster than anything we see in the past we are rapidly leaving that envelope of variability upon which our fragile infrastructure is, is, is based, um, is, is built for. And, and that's the real threat. Um, people sometimes say, well, hey, you know, it was warmer 100 million years ago and carbon dioxide levels were higher. And I get into that in the book. And that's all true. What's, what's different is that we have more than 8 billion people dependent on the stability of the climate during which our entire civilization was built. And we are changing that climate more rapidly than anything we're able to document in the past. It's the speed that's Mm -hmm. different, right, Michael? I mean, that is such a key element. And I'm curious because you do visit all of these uh, geologic eras in the past um, where you talk about when it was really, really hot and when the earth was really cold and covered in ice. Um, But you note over and over again that those conditions came, came about much more slowly than what we're seeing right now. So how does that complicate your ability to draw lessons from the past, knowing that the timelines were so much different than what we have now. Well, it is a really important caveat. Um, You know, we often, when we look to the past for an analog of what we could call rapid climate change, and mind you, rapid, but what paleoclimatologists (laughs) mean, what geologists mean by rapid, is, you know, something that took place over tens of thousands of years. Um, So even the most rapid 
geological event of warming that we're able to document it. It's called the PETM or the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum. I know it just I rolls like off the tongue. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> it just rolls yeah, yeah. off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but it happened actually 10 million years after the uh, the dinosaurs perished. Uh, so it happened about 55 million years ago. There was a rapid warming spike, and by rapid we mean over 10 tens of thousands of years, the planet uh, warmed fairly rapidly. And it actually did lead to uh, quite widespread extinctions, uh, especially of large mammals. Uh, it turns out if you're large, it's much more difficult for you to cool off. So mm -hmm. it favored um, basically shrinking. Uh, horses over the course of about 10,000 years got 30% smaller. Um, wow. But those that weren't able to adapt obviously perished. And so what we're doing today is a hundred times more rapid. The warming is a hundred times more rapid than what we, what we point to as the best example of a rapid warming event in the past, and and that's the caveat. And we are that CO two we're producing is acidifying the oceans at rates that have again no precedent in, in the past, as far back as we can go. That's what makes this such a fragile moment. Yeah. You argue that climate change has been responsible for the rise and fall of civilizations, and we're seeing a crisis at our border. You you actually make some really um, strong analogies and draw dotted lines. Um, I, I want you to sort of talk about um, what has happened before and how this sheds light on what we're going through right now. Yeah, I, I talk about the rise of Mesopotamia. It was the first true civilization, the first city-state. It rose about uh, 6,000 years ago um, in response, actually, to the drying of the climate in the, in the Middle East. Uh, that drying required uh, the development of new technology to deal with the drying climate, irrigation. Mm -hmm. uh, you had two rivers, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Mesopotamia me literally means the land between the two rivers. They were able to develop irrigation techniques to tap into that water, and that allowed them, and that required specialization. Uh, so you need specialized workforce to do those engineering projects. It led to, you know, the first diversified civilization, but it became so sprawling, so overextended, that when it was hit by an extreme drought, about 4.2 thousand years ago. Uh, we think it was due to a very large volcanic eruption. It changed the wind patterns. It dried out the Middle East. And suddenly, large parts of that empire were not able uh, to feed themselves. They didn't have adequate water. And you saw conflict arise mm -hmm. between the north and the south. And as you alluded to, the construction of a wall to keep those from the south from moving into the, you know, the, 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 the more um, fertile uh, regions of the north. Um, and if that isn't a lesson for us today, then I don't know what is. It was climate-related stresses at a regional scale, because this wasn't a global civilization, um, that led to conflict, that literally led to, um, it, it, it led to, you know, disparities and ethnic conflict, all of those things that we see emerging today, including the construction of a wall. As we know, there was, uh, the, the, our former president wanted to construct a wall, once again, essentially to block people from the South who are fleeing environmental degradation. It, it's history, unfortunately, repeating itself, but now at the global scale. Wow. Um, I want to go back to PETM 55 million <laughs> years ago. Uh, kind of obsessed with PETM. You it's, write, a good, it's a good uh, geological epic it, it, to get obsessed about. It, it's, it's really interesting. And as you point out, it's, it's relatively slow compared to what we're doing now, but relatively fast compared to other major climate changes on this planet. 
Um, you write that at one point there are probably mangroves and rainforests that reach Arctic latitudes, hippos, alligators, palm trees off the northwestern coast of Greenland, suggesting lush, balmy conditions near the North Pole. Santa's having a good time up there. Um, it, it was triggered by – there was a large release of CO2 during this relatively quick warming, right? So, yep. so And we still don't quite know why? Well, we, we do, um, although I sort of take the, the reader through a long excursion so that they, they, in the end they appreciate the answer when we get it. Um, the excursion is useful because it's the way scientists you know, discover things. We, there are false leads and, mm-hmm. and, and dead ends, and, and I wanted to take the reader on some of those false leads and dead ends because there's some fun stories to tell along the way, and there's some interesting cultural references, but um, but. It is, um, you know, it, one of the, the reasons that I focused on that period is it's often pointed uh, to by the doomers. Yeah. Mm. So mind you, you know, the climate deniers, we know them. They, they, they deny that climate change is even happening. Uh, that, that's absurd. Um, and it's, it's been an obstacle to meaningful climate action. But increasingly, we see something almost at the other end of the spectrum, which is doomism, the idea that it's too late to even do anything about it. And that potentially leads us, ironically, down that same path of disengagement, whether we deny it's a problem or we deny that we can do anything about it. It potentially leads to inaction. And so some of the doomers uh, will point to the PETM and will say it's an example of a runaway methane you know, warming event, like what's happening to us now. It doesn't matter if we stop fossil fuel burning because the methane is being released from the permafrost and we're going to get runaway warming and all life on Earth uh, will be extinct within 10 years. There are some prominent players in that space who literally uh, have uh, made that argument. Um, and it's, it's wrong today. That's not what's happening today. There is a rise in, in uh, methane. And it's mostly, uh, we, we can actually look at the isotopic fingerprint of the methane, the carbon atoms in the methane, and figure out where it's coming from. And it looks to be coming from natural gas extraction, hydraulic fracturing, us. Right, right. Not, mm-hmm. a, not a runaway feedback. It's our activities. Right, our, not the earth revolting, but, but just the stuff that we're pumping in there. Yeah, our yeah. continued, you know, extraction yeah. and burning of fossil fuels. So, and so that's, that's the lesson. So when you, in the end, I'll give away, you know, the punchline <laughs> here. Um, that's not what happened in the PTM. There wasn't a runaway methane-driven uh, warming. For a while, scientists thought that something like that might have happened. It's really only in the last you know, five to ten years where there has been more definitive work that says, no, it was carbon dioxide, the same carbon dioxide that we are creating from fossil fuel burning. In that case, um, there were volcanic eruptions in Iceland that were tapping into very carbon-rich uh, reservoirs within the solid earth, and so they were pumping out huge amounts of CO2. But again... We call that rapid. It was Not about 100, 100 yeah. times slower than today. Yeah. yeah, and I want you to, and we only have about a, a minute or and a half or so before we go to break, but um, you have this optimism based on, you know, our, our paleo cli- uh, climate past. Can you tell me where that optimism comes from and this idea that the earth is very resilient? Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, in a minute and a half, uh, I can't cover four billion we'll years come of back history. After the break, so, of course, but <laughs> start but, the answer. <laughs> but when we when we look uh, over the longest time scales, um, 
there is some stability. There's stabilizing mechanisms. Uh, the Gaia hypothesis, if you've ever heard about it, the idea that Earth in some ways almost acts like an organism. It has these stabilizing properties that keep the temperature of the planet within habitable bounds. By and large, that's true. Um, there are these stabilizing factors. The problem is if you hit the system too hard and too rapidly, then those stabilizing factors start to give way. And, and, and that's sort of where we are today. We're still within that envelope. If we act dramatically, we can, we, we, we can preserve this fragile moment. But if we continue headlong with fossil fuel burning and continue to elevate those CO2 concentrations, all bets are off. I thought of it a little bit like your house. If you set it to mm-hmm. 72, we'll, we'll find a way to stabilize there. But you can override that system if you do something extreme enough exactly. to your house. Um, that is Michael Mann. Uh, his new book is called Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. We've got a lot more with him. Stick with us on Studio 2. Welcome back inside Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman And I'm Cherry Gregg. And we're talking to, with climate scientist Michael Mann about our warming planet and what we can do to slow it down. He's the director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. and has a new book out called Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the climate crisis. We'd love for you to join our conversation. Call 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at org. Okay. Um, one more thing that I just liked in the book <laughs> that I want to bring up before we get into our, our questions. Um, so this thing called the Silurian hypothesis. Okay. Uh, first, I'm going to explain it by playing a clip from Doctor Who because that's <laughs> where the reference comes from. Do we have that clip out? Can we roll it? Go ahead. Hello. Are you a Silurian? Look. Do you understand me? Well, what do your people want? How can we help you? How can we help you? Okay, so let me explain that real quick for our listeners, Michael. This is a this is a character in Doctor Who from this sort of like ancient race of intelligent lizard people um, who existed and then kind of had to go into hiding at some point. And this hypothesis based on this idea, um, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of a thought experiment to think: what if there was an ancient intelligent civilization? That came and went so fast geologically that it's hard to prove whether or not it ever existed. Um, and you write in the book that the hypothesis, hypothesis isn't obviously wrong. Uh, it does demand consideration and close examination, even if it isn't provably true. Um, what was so interesting to you about the Silurian hypothesis and what does it have to tell us? Yeah, there's so many interesting things. It was hard to like get that story down to where I could fit it in <laughs> a section of the book. There's so much I wanted to talk about. First of all, there's just 
the amazing fact that uh, while Doctor Who in the UK, you know, was featuring these uh, reptile uh, people, these lizard people, we had the same thing here back in the States when I was growing up, Land of the Lost. Yes. Uh, it was the yes. same idea. So what is it about the 1970s? And I, and I have some theories <laughs> that I talk about. <laughs> Why were we so fast in, fascinated with the idea of a prior reptilian civilization that basically destroyed itself? Because that was the theme in both of these. And, and Land of the Lost actually drew upon... Um, some of the writers were some of the the, the, the most uh, prominent science fiction writers of mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 in you know uh, of our time. Um, so what's interesting, you know, is a, a, a thought experiment that was posed by my friend Gavin Schmidt, a uh, climate scientist who uh, now heads up the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is right above Tom's Diner, the Seinfeld Diner in <laughs> New York City, um, and Adam Frank, who was sort of a SETI guy, you know, the search for extraterrestrial, if you've right. seen the movie Cosmos. Um, and, and so he came out of this community of how would we find life on other planets? What would we look for? And he was talking to Gavin, and Gavin said, well, what, how would we know if there was intelligent life previously on this planet? Why don't right. we ans- answer that question first? And they went down that rabbit hole, and it's sort of fascinating because in the end, with the PETM, you see a lot of things that look a lot, could lead mm, you to yeah. think it was like a fossil fuel-driven yeah. you know, uh, uh, civilization that basically extinguished itself by warming up the planet. And it turns out it... it it requires quite a bit of um, detailed investigation to find evidence of things that do clearly contradict right. that. Because a lot of the stuff you would think would be there, you know, the bodies of these uh, reptile people or the, the um, you know, the homes that they constructed, all of that stuff would be, would be wiped clean by plate tectonics. and yeah. But, but it brings up this idea that perhaps it's hard to find you know evidence of civilizations because they come and go they would come and go so fast and because they are inherently self-destructive yeah because they get too complex too quickly yeah do you subscribe to that as all do you think something about human civilization might be inherently self-destructive well you know i ask that question because it it does sort of beg that question um uh, it's it's uh this has been asked by scientists for many years um uh you know the question um you know, if, if all the, there's all this intelligent life out there, how come we haven't heard from any of it? Yeah. And if you do the calculations, you know, it, it, the, the numbers are really, really uncertain. But when you come up with an estimate, it does seem like if the universe was teeming with life, we should have mm-hmm. heard from it. And one of the solutions, this is the Fermi paradox, um, after the physicist Enrico Fermi, one solution to that, con- that that paradox is that intelligent civilizations extinguish themselves so quickly that it's just the blink of an eye on geological time. Mm. And so I want to bring it to today and to uh, this idea that a lot of people feel, you know, we are an intelligent species here. We're um, doing a lot of this damage to ourselves in real time, and it's getting faster and faster. Can you talk about what it has been like for you over the past 25 years since you did the, what is it, the hockey stick graph? How have you seen people's ideas and understanding and acceptance of this idea of climate change shift and evolve over the past few years? Yeah, thanks for that question, Sherry. It's, it's a really good one. Like, you know, 25 years ago when we published the hockey stick, you know, it was just one of many 
pieces of evidence that really sort of mm -hmm. firmly establish that we are warming the planet. Uh, we are engaged in this unprecedented experiment. And, um, you know, now 25 years later, um, can I say that that work and other research that was done in the 1990s inspired the actions necessary to avert catastrophic warming? I can't because, mm -hmm. because we haven't uh, acted to the extent that's necessary. And it does sort of get into some of these existential questions that we were just talking about. Is it just our nature to mm -hmm. not be able to rise to that sort of challenge? Or is it our nature to fall victim to political systems that create such a gulf between power brokers and elite opinion mm. that, that there is no respect for fact? Uh, there's no respect for what science says. And right now we're sort of in, in a dangerous place right now where where one can ask that question and I want to bring in a couple comments that we've gotten we have a comment from Josh online who says on the societal level we aren't willing to sacrifice anything so it will continue to get worse until the pain of staying the same finally outweighs the pain of changing to me it's akin to a very slow and tedious war crime most of us are complicit in also um, from men um, collective action can make huge impacts we need to remember that in general versus uh, remember that in general versus throwing up our hands and saying that we what we do doesn't matter. I want to sort of like deal with a problem that I Ooh. think a lot of people face. You know that climate change is real, but then drawing the line to yourself and your individual action and what you could do either causes you to feel like there's nothing I can do or you, you feel very lost. How do you help people communicate to us? How do you help people draw that line and not feel hopeless? Thanks for that question. It, it, it is such a, it's another great question. Um, it was actually sort of the topic of my last book to blatantly mention my, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the new climate war, which was sort of about the tactics that are being used right now to block meaningful climate action. And doomism, ironically, which we were talking about, leading people to despair is actually one of the ways of, um, of leading them to disengagement. And so there's mm -hmm. some bad actors who have been feeding the flames, uh, the flames of uh, doomism. But there's also, there are all these D words that come up, and one of them is deflection as well. There's division, getting climate advocates fighting with each other over, you know, whether they're vegan or not, or whether they fly <laughs> or not. So it's a divide and conquer sort of strategy. And, and then there is um, deflection, mm -hmm. deflecting attention away from the needed systemic solutions, uh, carbon pricing, um, uh, clean energy standards, all of the policies that we know are necessary to incentivize this collective shift away from fossil fuels. Fossil fuel companies have borrowed from a playbook that was used for, by past industries, um, and they've deflected attention away from the need for systemic policies, which will hurt their profits. Mm shift away towards individual behavior, put it all on us. Um, and so it comes full circle because you asked, uh, there was a mention of collective action. The most important thing, therefore, that we can do as individuals is to work collectively to put pressure on our policymakers, to elect policymakers who will act on our behalf and to, you know, and to vote out um, those who are just rubber stamps for polluters. We have a really important uh, election coming up um, next year, which will decide the future course that we follow on issues like climate and everything else. One thing that you mentioned in the book, Michael, is this idea that scientists disagree. And in fact, they have to disagree. That's part of the process. But that bad actors will seize on that disagreement to, to, show, to sow dissension and misinformation. Yeah. Um, so I want to bring in now an email from Bill. 
who says, is there a climate science toolkit which provides a non-politicized view of the science that we can base our arguments from? We really need an easy way to understand that point of view that describes the increase in temperatures from CO2 and methane, mitigating those science deniers. So how do we encourage good scientific disagreement, but Bill's asking for tools to sort of like, I guess, ward off the bad effects sometimes of that. Yeah. So uh, thanks for both of those. Um, Yeah. First of all, sort of um, uncertainty is not what the critics would like you, the implications of uncertainty are not what the critics would like you to think. They like you to think that, oh, there's uncertainty in some aspects of the science, so we shouldn't act because, and they're willing to give you perfectly certain estimates of all of the cost of taking action when in fact the cost of inaction, and we've seen it here in Philadelphia, the deadly floods, the you know, we had the worst air quality in the world for several days because of that Canadian wildfire smoke. So the cost of inaction is already far greater than the co- the investment, um, the cost of the investment in clean energy. Um, so uncertainty is, you know, works in the opposite direction in the sense that some of the impacts are actually, at this point, worse than what we predicted. The overall warming of the planet is about what we predicted. In fact, here's, um, you know, a, a fact that... Uh, you know, uh, many people find astonishing. ExxonMobil, world's largest publicly traded fossil fuel company, their own scientists in the early 1980s in a report that got buried mm-hmm. correctly predicted how much warming we would see at this point in time if we continued with fossil fuel burning on the path that we followed. Um, they, so even ExxonMobil's own scientists predicted the warming. The warming we've gotten right. Even ExxonMobil's back of the envelope got it right. But some of the impacts, the extreme weather events that we're seeing here in Philadelphia and elsewhere, uh, the beginning of the collapse of the ice shelves and, and, and potentially the ice sheets and the sea level rise that's arising from that, many of these processes you know, were uncertain in the models. And as we see them play out in, in the real world, we're realizing that the models underpredicted mm. the rate and magnitude. In your book, you argue that climate change isn't a cliff that we go off at certain thresholds. Instead, you say, quote, it's a dangerous highway. We're going down. We need to take the earliest ramp possible. Explain your analogy here. What are those exit ramps that you believe we need to take and quickly? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we talk a lot about one and a half degrees Celsius, mm-hmm. three degrees Fahrenheit warming relative to the pre-industrial era as the point where we really start to see far worse consequences. And we're getting really close. We only got a few tenths of a degree to go. And so, you know, if we are to keep warming below that level, we've got to ramp down carbon emissions globally by 50% this decade and get them down to zero by the middle of the century. That's an uphill task. If we fail to do that, we don't give up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, because 1.6 is better than 1.7 or three degree, we'll do Fahrenheit. 3.2 Fahrenheit is better than 3.4 Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. and 3.4 is better than 3. Every tenth Every matters. tenth, every fraction of a degree matters. Yeah. It mm. prevents uh, damage, death, and destruction. And so it's about limiting the warming as much as we can, and frankly, taking steps uh, to adapt, especially helping frontline communities who are dealing with some of the worst consequences. And we see that here in Philadelphia. This is re- there's a real sort of climate justice issue. Um, ad- helping those communities, helping people, Um, adapt and provide them with the resilience necessary to deal with those impacts that are now baked in that we're not going to avoid. A couple minutes left, Michael. Uh, You're a scientist, but you have become, maybe whether you wanted to be or or Mm -hmm. not, a science communicator. 
Yeah. Much the way like Carl Sagan did, right? I mean, Carl Sagan was a scientist, but Carl Sagan was also someone who communicated what the scientific community was doing to the broader world. Well, you're too kind to include my (laughs) name in the same sentence as Carl Sagan, but thank you. (laughs) We're very kind here at the studio, too. Um, But, you know, part of your job, part of your challenge is communicating nuance in a world that seems to want to reject nuance. Uh, You you mentioned a, a mentor of yours, Stephen Schneider, who says... Uh, that the end of the world and good for you are the two lowest probability outcomes. How do you communicate nuance and uncertainty in our current media climate? Yeah, thanks. It's Steve Schneider, he was a, a, a good friend, a mentor, um, a role model for me, um, like Carl Sagan. Uh, he was a great scientist, a great science communicator, and he was full of these aphorisms. You mentioned one of them. Another was, you know, the truth is bad enough. We don't have to exaggerate the science of climate change because the truth is bad enough. And so you're right. We live in this sort of um, clickbait-driven world, you know, uh, page-view-driven world where which favors sort of extreme rhetoric and polarization. And so it's so difficult to have a nuanced conversation about just about anything, although you guys do a great job here. We're doing our best. Providing We're that. Doing our best. Providing that. Um, but yeah, so it, it's always a struggle to do that, but it is really important here because if you go too far in one direction, you deny that we have a problem. You go too far in the other direction, you, you, you deny we can do anything about it anymore, and the truth is in between. Yeah. And with that, I want to say your optimism is, I mean, refreshing, and it gives us all a little bit of hope and we appreciate that. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. That's Michael Mann. Uh, the new book is called Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Um, and if, it's one of many Michael Mann books. Yes. I won't list them all here. You can Google it. Um, uh, but we really do appreciate the time on studio, too. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. And you can catch more of Michael Mann tonight speaking about his new book at the Free Library of Philadelphia at 730. Good luck tonight. Our show is wrapping up right now. Mm-hmm. Our, our show is produced by Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. For more on Studio 2, head on over to WHYY.org or download us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate and review. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. We'll talk to you tomorrow.